him stay a little forever? Yeah, he's so cute. Because he's so cute and it makes you cry. <laughs> oh, you are so cute. I love your cute little smiles. Oh my gosh, I hate his little. Morning, Hope Ames. Once again, my name is Danny Householder. I'm a pastor here. I'm so glad that uh, we get to that we get to worship together. We believe it's no accident that you're here. We've been praying for you, and so we're so excited to gather in this really hot room today. Uh, just turn to the person next to you and blow some Holy Spirit on him. Is that cool? Is that heresy? Is that weird? Should I not have said that? I don't know. Anyway, well, hey, you saw in that opening clip, growing up is hard. Growing up is sometimes fun, but it's not always fun because it happens so quick. I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, I still expect to see this. I still expect to see that, and I'm like so excited because I'm like, I'm just the cutest person in the world. I'm the one on the far left, if you can't tell. <laughs> didn't have a care in the world, wore my suit and tie on the couch, no socks, no shoes, who cares? And then time just starts to go, and you start to grow. And then there's my siblings getting a little bit older, and I had that phase of the mop head, and sometimes I try to venture back into it, and I don't know, I'm getting older. It's kind of like a quarter-life crisis. Okay, find a third-life crisis. I'm getting older. I can't help it. And then I get really old, right? And it just happens. The next thing you know, like you and your family, like you're growing up. And I know like I've got hopefully a lot of life ahead of me, and a lot of you could tell me even more about how quickly this life goes. And you have lots of expectations for yourself. I'm going to look great. I'm going to do good things. But next thing you know, you wake up and you look like this. <laughs> and you don't even know how it happened. How did I go from that to this? I woke up a few days ago and I just thought I looked so delightful that I, t I snapped a picture of myself and sent it to my wife and said, don't you see how lucky you are? <laughs> how did that happen? Get that off the screen. <laughs> we're in a series called Let Me Tell You a Story. Us preachers, we get to choose the passages that we're preaching from week by week. Um, and I'll tell you this. I'm preaching to you from a story this morning that I wouldn't say is like my favorite Bible story. It's not that I don't like it. It's just that, to be totally honest with you, for how many times I've read it, I don't think I've ever spent a whole lot of time digging deep into it. And so I'm just going to name this off the top. I'm still kind of in a little bit of that nerding out phase when it comes to this story and this passage. So I'm going to do my best to preach a sermon, but we're going to dive deep into the text and the context and the scriptures this morning. You ready? Can we buckle in? Can we buckle in? The thing that's happening in this story is Jesus is growing up. He's growing up quick. And the stories of his life are about to fly by. This week at, at Hope, we've got a really exciting week ahead. We've got vacation Bible school. This is what the link looks like right now. I was praying over that space this morning. Isn't it cool? Yeehaw! Jesus loves y'all! Hope Ranch! That's what it's going to be. It's going to be awesome. I think we've got like 200 kids signed up right now, which is just mind-blowing. Pray for us and volunteer. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Um, and we're so excited, and we're going to root these kids in the stories of Jesus. Because life is going to go quick. Let's root their lives in the author of the most important story ever written, in the, the author of the story of all things. Let's root them in this Jesus. This Jesus, he grew up like you and me. Like, we forget that. I get it. Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He's this majestic being. He's almighty God. And yet, he was also a boy. 
We picked this up in our reading from this morning. It's in Luke chapter 2. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. So here's your context. Jerusalem was the world center for Jewish people, the people that Jesus was a part of. These are God's people, also called Israel. This was the world center. It's where they showed up. It's where they would worship the most. It's where the temple was located. It's where they came together to get close with God. Jesus and his family would go there every single year, but there was something special about this year. Jesus was 12 years old. And in the ancient Jewish context, a 12-year-old was in their last year of childhood. At age 13, a child in the, Jewish, in the ancient Jewish culture would be considered an adult. And some of you are looking at your 12-year-olds right now and say, grow up, it happens quick, hopefully not that quick. And so this would have been a very special Passover festival for Jesus. This would have been a very, very crucial, critical year between a father and a son. In ancient Jewish context, in ancient Jewish culture, a father would spend a ton of time, even more time than usual, with their 12-year-old son. Because it was almost time for him to grow up. And so at something like the Passover festival, the father would walk with the son and teach them all the things that they need to know about life. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was a carpenter. So Joseph would have walked Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem and said, okay, so here's where you're going to buy your supplies. Then over here on this side of the street, this is where you would come to sell your goods. But also, Joseph, being a Jewish man, he would have been rooted in the Jewish scriptures. He would have had a deep understanding of God and the history of God's people. And so he also would have been teaching Jesus the ancient history of his people. He would have been teaching him the scriptures. He would have been walking with him through Jerusalem and say, this is where they worship. This is where they offer sacrifices. Showing him all around Jerusalem, Jesus, these are my dreams for you. Jesus, these are my hopes for you. I mean, you can't help but relate to Jesus a little bit, can't you? I mean, whether you're a 12-year-old now or younger and you're growing up, or you're a parent, or you just remember what it was like, do you remember growing up? Do you remember having someone that you wanted to be like? Do you remember having someone who had dreams for you, who had passions for you, who had a vision for you, who wanted you to become your greatest potential? One of those people in my life is my dad. I've been blessed with incredible parents. My dad is this incredible guy. He's your senior pastor, um, and he's also my boss, and I'm not ashamed to say that's a big part of how I got my job. I don't care, all right? Praise God, I'm so thankful for him. My dad uh, has raised me as a father. He's raised me as a pastor. He's raised me in so many different ways. And I think about all the different things that he's shown me, all the different places that he's taken me. I think about the ways that he's taught me how to work. I think about the ways that he's taught me how to be a pastor. But I also think about the ways that he's taught me to connect with God. Think about the ways that he's taught me how to worship. Think about the ways that he's taught me how to be honest and vulnerable and real with God and God's people. I mean, what you see on the stage today is in large part because of the work that he put into me growing up, walking me on the streets, showing me where to go, what to do, how to live. Did you have anybody like that in your life? Do you know what it's like? Jesus' story, he continues, and his story takes a quick twist, and this was not a part of Joseph's dream or vision. It says that Mary and Joseph started home for Nazareth. The festival was over. They had been traveling for a day, and Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first. And maybe you hear that, and you're like, okay, I feel much better, because Jesus' parents were terrible. They forgot Jesus in the temple, in Jerusalem. Can you believe it? 
Now, keep in mind, like, ancient Jewish culture was different than our culture in our context. All the parents would have raised all the kids, and so it would not have been uncommon for a group of people to leave a city and just assume our children are with the other parents. Really, it was their fault. Not Mary and Joseph. Are you kidding me? His parents did not miss him at first because they figured he was with the other parents. They started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, finally, they went back to Jerusalem. Have you ever asked this question? How do we lose Jesus? Like, how do we lose Jesus? And I wonder if his parents are asking that. How do we lose Jesus? But on a deeper level, have you ever asked that question like, how did I get here? Where's Jesus? What's going on in my life? How have I walked so far away? Or maybe, why does it seem like he's walked so far away from me? Why does it feel like this faithfulness that we just sang about isn't very apparent in my life? How did I lose Jesus? How did I get to this point? See, they're going through all those tricks that they would go through. They'd check with all of the other parents. They'd check with all of the other family. They'd check with all of the other friends. But they're not finding Jesus. Do you have those tricks where you get your kids to come? You go through those different stages? For us growing up, when our parents wanted us to get to the car, the first thing was, hey, be in the car at 7 o'clock. See you there. And then it would, it would go from instruction to, okay, let's get a little bit of light humor. My dad would always say, I'm in the car. He wasn't in the car. I don't get the joke. But nonetheless, we would always be like, oh, that means like it's really time to go. And then we're five minutes late. My dad's like, you need to get downstairs right now. He's more calm and peaceful and generous than that. But it's going through these stages, all the tricks, all the things that you can do to get your kids to come back to a certain place. And if you're a parent, you know that to a certain degree and to a certain level, you have a certain level of control over your kids. Like, you're older, you've seen more, you know more, you're wiser. And in some of you, you're like, you have no idea what my kids know. They just manipulate me. I, I don't know. I'm not a parent. But those of you who are from Riverside Bible Camp, you know these tricks. I know that you do. We had these tricks uh, with a group that we went to Haiti with a few years ago. This was a group of Kairos college students that went to Haiti with us back in 2018. Every time I look at this picture, I can't help but stare at the guy in the middle in the cub shirt. That's my friend Matt Shako. He looks really excited to be there, doesn't he? I always forget it's like that. So we had 17 of us on this trip, I think, give or take 16 or 17. And we had a counting system to make sure that we had everybody with us at all times. Because when you're in a foreign country, you want to make sure that you keep the group together, especially when you're the pastor of the church. So we had this counting system. Every single person had a number. It would start with the guy in the top left, his name's Caleb, and he would say, one! And then they'd go, two, three, four, everybody count out their number until we got to 17. Every single time that we'd go somewhere new, we would start off with one, two, three, four, all the way to 17. One day, we are going to visit the market in Haiti. We've been in the market all afternoon. We're having a good time. We're buying some things. We're interacting with the people. We're getting back to the trucks that are going to take us to the camp, and we count. The only problem is we can't start because no one's saying one. And we realize we lost Caleb. We lost number one. We lost him. We don't, we don't know what to do. We didn't have cell phone service down there. Have you ever been in a foreign country and you lost one of your responsibilities that happens to be a living, breathing human being? I'm like, there goes my job. It was fun while it lasted. We have no other option. We get in the trucks, head back to camp. We're praying, please be back at the camp. We go in, he's standing in the gate, and he goes, how did you forget number one? 
And that's just a really silly example, and it's quite the Jesus juke here, but sometimes I wonder if Jesus is like, I'm supposed to be number one. It's not about me following you, it's about you following me. Let's not go places before Jesus says, I'm here and I'm ready. I'm going. Jesus isn't holding us back. He's not stopping us from going places that are good for us. Jesus knows the rhythm of our hearts. He knows the capability of the pace of our feet. Jesus will say, one, I'm ready when it's time to go. Let's hop back into our story here in Luke chapter 2. It says three days later, three days, because remember they were traveling for a day, then they realized that Jesus was lost. So they traveled back for a day, and then they searched all of Jerusalem for a day, and finally they go to the temple. They discover him in the temple sitting among the religious teachers. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, I know that if you come here, you're like, okay, religious teachers, I think of a pastor, I think of Danny. Not that impressive, right? Please. Think Carrie, think Haley, think Pete, think Sarah, right? The religious teachers in those days were the top scholars of their society. They were the top of the top. Every single young Jewish boy started off in the education system to learn more about the Torah, about God's scriptures. And only the top of the top of the top would make it through all these different cuts to eventually be a religious teacher and some of them to be a priest. And Jesus is teaching with them, and the text tells us that they are amazed. But there's even more to it with this word amazed. Go ahead and take a look at what this word is in the Greek. It's existemi. Say existemi. Existemi, it's from two words, ek and histemi, which is out of and to stand. So quite literally, to remove from a standing position. Do you think that Jesus was passive? Do you think that Jesus just let people walk over him? At 12 years of age, Jesus is removing people from the place that they believe that they have because he says that place only belongs to God. And as a 12-year-old, he has that kind of confidence that kind of authority. Sometimes in these days, we think that it's so noble to not have confidence, to not take ownership of what God has given us, to, take, to not take ownership of what God says we are. Now, there is this, there's, there's two sides to it. When we are children of God, we are also servants of God. When we are children of God, we are servants to this world. We serve them. We love them. We care for them. We follow the example of Jesus who says, I'm God, but I also get on my knees to wash the feet of my disciples. Jesus has this confidence at 12 years old. He's always going to be that same compassionate Savior. But at 12 years old, he's already removing those who have taken the place of God. Removing those in the religious establishment who are keeping people away from God to say, you didn't make the cut. You weren't the best of the best. You didn't get to become a religious teacher. You didn't get to become a priest. Jesus walks and he says, away with you from that spot. It belongs to me. A proper English paraphrase to that would be flabbergasted. And if you think I'm exaggerating that, look at the scholars who write about it. Literally, the word that they use for it is flabbergasted. They are flabbergasted. Now, Jesus, his parents, finally show up to the scene. I think that it's interesting they didn't know what to think. It said that the religious teachers, they were blown away. And if you follow the story of Luke, you'll find that the religious teachers are oftentimes at odds with Jesus. The religious teachers are not necessarily followers of Jesus. The religious teachers are eventually the ones who want Jesus to die. These are the people who oppose Jesus. 
And sometimes we're like, well, of course, if someone doesn't follow Jesus, Jesus is going to confuse them. And maybe if you're on the outside looking in, you're like, I'm not a Christian. I don't follow Jesus because I don't get him. Good news. Jesus' own parents didn't understand him. Isn't that great? Everybody take a nice, deep sigh. Are you ready? Ah, Jesus' parents didn't understand what he was up to. So who am I to think that I would know what he's up to? Doesn't mean that he doesn't love me just because I don't know what he's up to. His own parents didn't know what he was up to. He loved his parents. Mary said to Jesus, your father and I have been frantic. You know that that causes trouble when parents start to speak for each other. Well, your father and I, or well, your mother and I, when they're bringing the other one in, you know it's an issue. We've been searching for you everywhere. Paraphrase, what is Mary saying? What are you doing, Jesus? I mean, she quite literally said, why are you doing this to us? A lot of times we think Jesus is doing things to us. And I get it. There are things that Jesus does to us. Like Jesus convicts us with his love. But keep this in mind too. Way more than Jesus is doing things to us, Jesus is doing things for us. Like what Jesus is doing to us, that's the transformative work. But first, Jesus is doing things for us. He's doing things for us. So, Jesus, so Mary asks Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus' response is actually quite witty and amazing for a 12-year-old. He responds basically to say, well, what are you doing? Why did you need to search? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? I can't go on without saying a funny joke that I've always heard. Sometimes people come to church and the last person they expect to meet is Jesus. What is it with that? We come to church, we get emotional, we're hit with stuff like, oh no, I bet it was just the music. Oh no, I bet it was just the lights. Oh no, I bet it was just when we fanned off each other. Maybe the Holy Spirit's here. Maybe God's really here. Maybe that feeling, that tugging in your heart that's moving you to love in a way that you didn't know that you could love before, to serve in a way that you didn't know you could serve before, to live a different life in a way that you didn't know you could live before. Maybe it's because God is really here. But in this context, it's even deeper than that. Jesus says, didn't you know I must be in my father's house? This would have been jarring and shocking to every single person who heard it, especially Mary. Do you remember what Mary just said? Mary just said, your father and I have been frantically looking for you. She says, I'm your mother, he's your father. And Jesus responds by saying, I'm already with my father. This was groundbreaking. Go ahead, take a look at all of the scholars' work that look at all of the ancient religions of this world. Not a single one of them will directly and personally call the omnipresent God Father, Parent. The Old Testament, yes, it will describe God as a father. It will describe God as a mother, but never did a Jewish person look at God and say, you're my dad. In Jesus, a 12-year-old has the audacity in the temple to say, I'm already with my father. Now, I would like to think that if I was in Mary's shoes, or if I was in Joseph's shoes, I would say, yes, Jesus, son of God, you know what you're talking about. But how privileged are we to live 2,000 years after, to read the scriptures that we've read, to know the miracles that we know, to look at the Bible through the lens of the resurrection, Mary and Joseph, they didn't have that foresight that we have. They didn't get to look at it through the resurrection of Christ. They didn't get to know everything. And here Jesus is, their 12-year-old boy, saying, 
I listen to my Father, my relationship with my Heavenly Father, it absolutely relativizes every other relationship anyone's ever had. I am with my Father, and I am doing my Father's work. Mary's asking that question, why would you do this to us? How could you do this to us? And I wonder if now she's asking, now, okay, well, parent to parent. Uh, now I'm not talking to Son of God, now I'm talking to God, Father God, right? Okay, how could you do this? Why would that be possible? Why would God let Mary, I mean, Mary, the one who brought the Son of God into this world, why would he let her go through that? Just before this, in Luke chapter 2, there's a really kind of jarring passage. It's, it's, it's really bothersome. Luke chapter 2 is kind of the only text, uh, the only chapter in all of the gospel accounts where we have like a somewhat detailed account of Jesus' childhood. But it skips a lot of things. It goes from Jesus' birth to Jesus in the temple being dedicated to then Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old. So let's reverse just a little bit, and now we're at Jesus being dedicated in the temple, where they show and they present him in the temple. There's a man named Simeon, and Simeon was told by God, I would see the Messiah, the Holy One, the Anointed One, the Savior, the Deliverer before I die. I'm the one who's, I'm going to see this. I'm not going to die before I see the One. And Simeon has this to say to Mary when he realizes holding Jesus, that Jesus is the One. This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul, Mary. From her child's birth, her baby boy's birth, she's been hearing that this greatest gift in her life is going to cause her more pain than she ever knew is possible. It's going to go deeper than physical pain. It's going to go deeper than emotional pain. It is going to rip down into her soul. And at this point, I cannot help myself from empathizing with Mary. Isn't she just being human? Doesn't she just want Jesus to stay her boy for a little longer? She's starting to recognize, I don't have control over him. I can't tell him what to do. He's got a relationship with the Father God that relativizes every other relationship that I have in my life. He's not just my boy, and she's starting to sense it. Do you know what it's like to see kids grow up and you want it to slow down? Like I said, I'm not a parent. Abby and I, we don't have kids, but, but one of the cool things that I'm starting to get to see as a pastor is I'm starting to get to see some of your kids growing up, and it's freaking me out. I just came across this picture last week, and I was like, that's perfect for the sermon. Some of you will really relate to this picture. This was from our first Sunday when we did like a soft launch of Hope Ames. I think there were 10 people here, but like 200 claimed to be here. It's fine. And it's crazy because I, I could name all four of those girls right there. I could name the little boy in the front with his glasses. All of them. I could hardly recognize looking at this picture. I think about our first Power Life students who got confirmed when they were in eighth grade or first year here. Now they've all graduated high school and they're going off, they're moving out. Some of them are going to college. How can I, I can't comprehend this. They're growing up. It's not slowing down. And I just think, my goodness, if I'm experiencing that as a pastor, what must some of you be experiencing as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, as friends, as mentors, as brothers and sisters in Christ? Or maybe just when you look in the mirror, like, I, I can't. 
I can't slow this down. And look, I get it. It is not always a joyful experience to see your kids grow. Sometimes it's not sad because you're like, oh, it's so sad. Stay young. I love you. Sometimes it's sad because like, why aren't you growing up? I asked my mom. Um, I was like, mom, I kind of need some illustrations this morning. Would you mind telling me? Uh, I, I text her and say, any funny stories about having a hard time controlling me as a 12-year-old or a child or preteen or early teen? She said, without hesitation, two shirts. You always wore two shirts. Didn't matter if it was 100 degrees. You would sweat through both. Two shirts made the laundry tough. You used to play ding-dong ditch with friends. Not good when your father's a pastor. Your locker at school was disgusting. You didn't turn in your homework. At that age, you were not very nice to your sister. When I asked you to clean your room, you would put everything in the laundry chute, including clean, folded clothes. <laughs> you don't understand how much of a saint my mother is. Oh, Saint Sally. There's no doubt about it. She said, other than that, you were a pretty good kid. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. I said, wow, that's a lot. She said, oh, also, you were the last one in the locker room, so I had to wait forever to pick you up. Does that help? Yes, that helps. I forgot about that. Oh, you also loved Axe Body Spray. <laughs> it was cool in 2005. It was. Oh, excuse me, I didn't get the bottom of my feet. That's, I mean, it, like, I remember coming home from school one day after showering in Axe body spray. My mom asked me, do you smoke cigarettes? <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> and she said, oh, and I don't know if this really had to do with me being bad. She said, oh, also, you had that bad haircut one time. It was seriously a dumb and dumber haircut. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just look it up. She said, poor guy, that was right before the school dance. Mmm, sad face. <laughs> Look, I get it. It's not like all joys. And I don't have to be a parent to know that. Now, if you're a kid here, don't worry. Your parents talk very highly about you all the time. All the time. They love you. They care about you. But there's something beautiful about being someone's child. Whether the growing is easy, and I don't know if it ever is, I don't think I'll be someone who finds that out. <laughs> or whether it's difficult and it's a challenge, there is something beautiful about the relationship between a parent and a child when it works out the way that God intended for it to be. See, just after this story, when Jesus is 12 years old in the temple, teaching the religious officials, blowing them off of their feet, the next story about Jesus is his baptism goes from 12 years old to 30 years old. I'm going to be 30 in 20 days. Ah! So when I hear that, it just messes with me. But you know, you go from one chapter to the next, 12 to 30, and isn't that kind of how it feels? I'm going to be 30 years old in 20 days, and I feel like I was just, I still feel like I'm 12. I feel like I'm a 29-year-old boy. How did this happen? One chapter to the next, here's Jesus. He's still Jesus. He's still Son of God. He's still humble servant. And as Jesus is baptized, there's a voice that descends from heaven that says, you are my dearly loved Son, and you bring me great joy. Do the children in your life know, one, they are your children, and two, that you bring them great joy? Has anyone ever told you, no matter what happens, you are my child, and you bring me great joy. 
Now this is special for us to read. Be special for anybody to say that to us. But for the Jewish people in the ancient Jewish culture, they would have heard that and they would have recognized it. These are, these are ancient prophecies. But for such a short verse, it's actually two prophecies put into one. When they would hear, you are my dearly loved son, they would immediately think Psalm chapter 2. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Only ask and I will give you all the nations as your inheritance. The whole earth is your possession. What did it mean to be a son of a father, the firstborn son of a father? It meant that you had everything that your father had. All of the wealth, all of the property, all of the everything, all of the family, all of the jobs, all of the opportunities, all of it would come to you. In that patriarchal society, that's what they had, and that's why oftentimes the Bible talks about the son's inheritance. Now, the crazy thing about the Bible is, in Galatians, it says, now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor man nor woman. Every single person gets to be the firstborn child of God. Receive what Jesus has earned for us. But when God is saying over Jesus, you are my dearly loved son, he's saying, you get everything that I have. I think about all the days of my life where I'm like, I want to be just like my dad. And I don't, it, it does not pass me for a second to realize how lucky I am to be able to say that. I will not be exactly like my dad. For some of you, you're like, I wish you were a little more like your dad. I'm, okay, he probably does too. Jesus told his disciples, anyone who sees me, knows me, listens to me, sees, knows, and listens to the Father. Jesus actually inherited all of it. First prophecies in Psalm chapter 2, you are my dearly loved son. You're getting everything. And then the second part of the prophecy, and you bring me great joy. You bring me great joy. This is Isaiah chapter 42. Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. You will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in darkness. It's so interesting. The ancient Jewish people would have heard those two prophecies and thought that cannot be the same person. On one hand, you've got the son, and on the other hand, you've got the servant. They can't be the same, but that's the crazy thing about Jesus. You can't control him because he's got all the power in the world, but you also cannot possibly comprehend him because he's got more love than you dared to dream was possible. He is both son and servant. So when we ask Jesus, what are you doing, Jesus? Do you know what his response is? Jesus is bringing joy to the Father. He is bringing joy to the Father. Go ahead and take a look at this on the next screen. God's kids. That's you. God's kids. Do you know that? You are God's child. And it brings God joy to call you his child. Do you remember that? Psalm chapter 2. You are my dearly loved son. Isaiah chapter 42. I'm very pleased in you. You are my son. You bring me joy. How does the son bring joy to his father? So that he will make everyone righteous. Those who walk in darkness will see a great light. You are God's kid. The way that Jesus brings joy to his father is by bringing you into the family to inherit what he inherits as God's son. You get the lion's share. You get everything. And this is what it means to be God's kid. One, you get honor. 
Let's be like Jesus is the 12-year-old. I mean, not, we're, we're not pretending to be Jesus. We don't get to be Jesus. We're not God. He didn't mean that. But God gives you that high of an honor. You are my child. You're my child. That is the greatest honor you could ever receive. In that picture where you saw me sitting with a few of the kids in the front row here, I was giving a children's sermon. And in that children's sermon, I asked each one of them for their name. And at the end of the children's sermon, I gave them a name tag, and each name tag said, Child of God. And I think that might be the most important sermon I ever preach. If you ever take anything away from me or from our church or from our pastors, from our sermons, from our songs, from our worship, I hope that it's this. You are a beloved child of God. You get it all. Do you think that your life isn't what you thought it was going to be? Are you waking up and seeing someone in the mirror that you don't recognize? You thought it was going to be someone you saw a long time ago, or you thought it was going to be the person that you dreamt of a long time ago, but it's just you. Jesus says, that's the greatest thing you can be. Because I call you my child. I call you my brother. I call you my sister. My father calls you my child. You are honored. You are honored. You are not at a shortage of riches or wealth. I get it. God cares about our physical world. God cares about the materials in our life. That's why when Jesus shows up and he heals people of their physical ailments, he does it. He does it. He cares about this physical material world. He does care about it, but even more so. He cares that you have a place in his family. You're honored like that. Number two, what does it mean to be God's kid? You have access. Dearly loved child. A dearly loved child. Don't ever forget that. Dearly loved. Think tonight, if it is 2 a.m., and someone comes knocking on your door and says, I need a glass of water. Who is the one person you will say okay to for that? Truth be told, if I come to the door and I say, Abby, I need some water, she'll say, go get it yourself, you grown man. But if it's your child, you get that kind of access. You have this unlimited access because you are dearly loved by God. This is why when Jesus teaches about prayer, he says, you call him Father. When it says knock on the door, he says, knock on the door irreverently. Knock on the door shamelessly. Knock on the door like you don't care who else in the neighborhood gets woken up because you are talking to your Father. I want to tell you this. Every single week, every single week, I have somebody come up to me and say, hey, I'm so sorry. Our kids were kind of loud during the service. Let me tell you this. There's never been a church that shut down because they had too many kids. And let that be an illustration to remind us of what heaven will be like. Shamelessly, irreverently, walking into the door of our Father's house, say, I belong here! La, 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 la! Cram, cram, draw, draw, beep, boop, beep, boop on the iPad. Whatever you gotta do! You have that kind of shameless, irreverent access to your Father because He loves you like that. And finally, you have absolute safety. Absolute safety. You could please God or you could reject God. You could satisfy God or you could disrespect God. But that doesn't change God's love for you. God's love for you is untouchable. When it's unconditional, it means you can't change it either. God loves you. You can't lose it. So many of us, we're so horrified of somebody rejecting us. You are received and accepted and affirmed and loved by the creator of this universe. So many of us are so terrified of getting any sort of criticism because it just shoots down our personality. It shoots down our character. It shoots down who we are. It shoots down our reputation. With all due respect to the really good people of this world, it doesn't matter what they say about you. If your God, your Father, says you're valuable, 
you have absolute security. Man, my dad has taught me a lot about being a pastor, and I think in some ways I've pleased him, in some ways I've disappointed him. There's no doubt about it. But you know what's cool? I can just, I can always go back to him. Always go back to him. And even at 27, when I was getting married, he's still showing me how to tie my tie. I'm not telling you, oh, my dad loves me, so God loves you. I'm saying, this is like a reminder in my life. I think this is part of the reason why God gives us this illustration, father and child, father and son, father and daughter, parent and kid. Because the ones who do it right, do you understand that if you are a parent, do you understand the power of the love that you hold in your hands? Do you understand the influence that you have if you're not a parent, if you're a mentor, if you're a friend, if you're a cousin, if you're an aunt, if you're an uncle, do you know what kind of presence and example and influence you can put into a young person's life if they know that you're the kind of person that they can come to you at 27 years old and say, I don't know how to do this. You'd say, come on in, I love you. There's nothing more freeing than that. There's nothing more lovely than that. To be loved unconditionally, to walk through doors and say, I'm home. I remember when I was watching Abby walk down the aisle and I could not keep it together. On the left, that's a picture of it. So I finally just started to look down. <laughs> he leaned over to me. and I'll never forget what he said because it wasn't that deep. He just said, you're not going to want to miss this. And he's right, I didn't. Church, you're not going to want to miss this. Let Jesus take you out of your feet. Let Jesus sweep you off your feet. From the places that we think we have to belong, from the places that we think we have to take, let him sweep you off your feet and become a child again. It brings God joy to give you the freedom of a child. That is why at Hope, one of our biggest efforts every single year is Vacation Bible School. Every single year. There's a reason why we put so much into this. These are some pictures of Vacation Bible Schools from years past. And because it brings Jesus great joy to expand the family of God, to remind people that they are God's children, it brings us great joy. So we don't hold back the fun. You saw the set earlier. Can I show you my costume for this week? I'm so excited. I'm cowboy dude. Isn't this great? Isn't this fun? This is my first pair of cowboy boots I've ever owned. Ow! They're really cheap. Ugh. You know what? Yes, I look like a fool. No, I don't care. Because there's nothing more joyful than to be... I, so what if someone rejects me? So what if someone criticizes me? I'm loved by my Father in Heaven. And it brings Him great joy to call me His child. You can't take me seriously right now. I, I see the looks in your eyes. Learn from your children this week. Mm, huh? All right, I'm going to lose that. Do you mind if I preach the rest of the sermon barefoot? It's holy, holy land anyway, right? Huh? Jesus Duke. All right. <laughs> so you're like, I don't like that he wears shorts, and now he's barefoot. <laughs> I hear your murmurs. <laughs> yeah. Here's the crazy thing. Jesus is God. Jesus has all this power to make anybody, you know, part of his family. You can't control him. And yet, it says that Jesus returned to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph. And he was obedient to them. Isn't that crazy? Jesus was obedient to the ones who didn't understand him. 
I'm not here to say that God is going to do every single thing that you ask of him, but God does listen to you. In the Old Testament, the word for listen is shema. Go ahead and say shema. Shema literally means to listen, but it also literally means to obey. And God is saying, I'm listening to you. Whether you understand me or not, I understand you. You don't have to understand things to belong in my house. So many of us think that we have to get our houses in order to follow Jesus. This hit me so hard this week. It just drilled me this week when I was praying over this. Following Jesus does not mean that I have my house in order. It's more about Jesus saying over and over and over and over, you belong in my Father's house and believing him. You've heard Jesus say, you belong in my Father's house. Relentlessly for the rest of his life, a call that nobody else would endure, a call of highs and lows, the highest praise, but the worst of torture, the greatest of insults, the worst of abandonment and, forsaken, and forsakenness. He endured it all. You've heard him say it. Do you believe him when he, when he says, you belong in my father's house? This isn't an exhaustive list, but I think that these are two starting points that can help us as we close the sermon for today. You really want to not just hear Jesus, but believe Jesus? I'm not saying understand, but but start to believe him when he tells you these promises. First thing is, truly, remember his excellence. He's the son of God. He's getting everything the father has. He has all the power. He has all the glory. He was there when the earth began. He'll be there when the earth ends. And he'll bring us into eternity with him. Remember his excellence. Remember his power. But then experience his love. He's the son of God, but he is also the lamb of God. When Jesus was a boy, Joseph would walk him around the city and said, this is where you worship. This is where you get your supplies. This is where you sell your goods. And then they would have gone to the temple and Joseph would have said, and this is where they sacrifice the lamb. This ancient Jewish practice. Sacrifice the lamb. And the lamb's blood would suffice for the sins and the wrongdoings of the people. seeing where this is going? This is going to go deep, so strap in. Jesus is 12 years old in this scene in Jerusalem. We do not hear about Jesus going into Jerusalem again until 30 years old. Excuse me, 33 years old. The last week of his life. He's 12 years old in the temple in Jerusalem. 21 years later, he's coming back to Jerusalem and he will not leave alive. There's this incredible parallel passage at the end of Luke. It's in Luke chapter 24. You know it as the road to Emmaus. There were two disciples, two followers of Jesus. We don't know if they were men, if they were women. If one was a man, one was a woman but it was a couple of God's people. And they thought they lost Jesus. Sound familiar? They say to Jesus, we hope that he was the Messiah. It all happened three days ago. 
Jesus said, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer these things before entering into his glory? Don't you remember the prophecies? Don't you remember what God said? Luke is pouring it out for us here. I mean, he's just painting it on the canvas of his gospel account here. In Luke chapter 2, he starts it off. He says, this innocent boy, 12 years old, 12 years old, this innocent boy attends the Passover festival. And as Joseph is walking in the streets and saying, this is your life, this is how we worship, this is the land. I wonder if simultaneously Jesus' heavenly Father is walking him on the streets of Jerusalem and saying, when you're here next, that is where you will gather the wood. This is the road that you will carry it. And there is the hill. And you are the lamb. I, I mean, remember his excellence, but experience his love. This innocent 12-year-old boy who has the audacity to sweep the priests off their feet. It would be his joy to walk those streets carry our sin. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Know this about Jesus. No, Jesus does not give you control, but he promises commitment. Jesus does not promise you control. But this 12-year-old boy who knows who he is, Life's going to happen fast. It's going to go quick. He's not going to get everything in his life that he would have wanted or he would have planned, but because it brought him great joy to serve and honor his father, he would walk the streets of Jerusalem. He would carry a cross of the hill. In commitment to us, he was the lamb. But he had to do it. Because three days later, he would rise, he would walk. For us to rise, for us to walk too because we get everything that the Son gets. Life forever, unconditional love, a place in our eternal Father's house. Amen. Let's stand on up and sing.